0: Coming to you from the American College of Emergency Physicians annual meeting in Boston, this is ReachMD and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. I'm joined by Dr. James C. Michener. He's of Ann Arbor, Michigan. He received the Colin C. Rory Jr. PhD award, say that three times fast, for excellence in health policy for a career dedicated to advocating for more efficient, affordable healthcare in America. Dr. Michener is an attending emergency physician at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital in Ann Arbor and clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine At the University of Michigan Medical School. He's also medical director at Michigan's federally designated healthcare quality improvement organization. Dr. Mitchner, welcome to the program. Good morning. So before we get into some of the brass tacks behind the work that has merited this award, of which uh, you told me before we started that in a wonderfully humble fashion, I think many of my guests have said, I don't know how I earned this award. But before we get into uh, actually how you did, tell me a little bit about uh, some of your work with the Healthcare Quality Improvement Organization, because that's sort of fascinating and clearly is very much in line with your earned award for health policy.
1: So the Quality Improvement Organization network is a network of organizations designated by the federal government, specifically the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. To work on uh, promoting and improving the quality of health care for the nation's Medicare beneficiaries, of which in Michigan there's 1.7 million Medicare beneficiaries. And so what we do is we work with hospitals, nursing homes, home health agencies, physician offices, to do whatever we can to make sure the quality of the care they're getting is optimal and is cost-efficient. So, for example, we make sure that we, we promote the use of aspirin for heart attacks and getting them to the cath lab within 60 minutes, giving antibiotics for patients with pneumonia, treating heart failure effectively, keeping nursing home patients from getting bed sores or from falling, working with home health agencies to try to keep patients out of the emergency department in the hospital by doing whatever they can at home. And we have had a series of three-year contracts with the federal government to do this ever since 1984.
0: Since 1984. Correct. Always right. on a three-year renewal basis? Well,
1: until recently, until last August, they went to a five years for the first time.
0: Right. So the trust finally started to seep in.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: Good point. How do you cover such a broad area? I mean, a number of the examples that you, that you demonstrated there of what the initiatives are about, it, it covers almost the entire spectrum of, of medicine. How do you approach... All these different barriers or or challenges.
1: First of all, we collaborate with multiple organizations. We get stakeholders in the same room and we problem solve. For example, we might ask one hospital, how come your safety record is better than the other? What are you doing? And what can you do that can be exportable to all these other hospitals? Show us by example what you've done. And by the way, we don't charge for that. This is completely free. And we work with anybody who is willing to work with us good case in point is giving antibiotics to patients who are having surgery. You know, how do you get an antibiotic into a patient who's having their appendix out within one hour of the incision time? Well, you work with the anesthesiology. You make sure that the anesthesiologists are the ones that are ordering the antibiotics, not the surgeon, you know, the night before. Hmm. And you work with physicians to make sure that you know they've had the antibiotics and they stop giving them 24 hours later, instead of continuing on for four or five days, which doesn't, it hasn't been shown to work. So we look at evidence-based medicine. We get guidance and recommendations from specialty societies about how to do this. In other words, this is not a top-down approach where you know a federal official. In Baltimore says this is the way it has to be done, regardless of what the evidence. So they listen to practicing clinicians when they set up these rules. It yeah. seems
0: like it would require an enormous amount of data accumulation, meta-analysis, as it were, to really figure out what's up to date, and then be able to implement those changes across a broad variety of fields in emergency medicine. You know, a number of initiatives that you were just talking about. What would you see as a big challenge there? Because How do you stay up to date? How do you make the most informed decisions to be able to guide practices? And how do you find the data to be able to do that?
1: The data is found for us by specialty societies. So for example, when we recommend specific antibiotics for Medicare patients with pneumonia, we depend on the infectious disease experts. We depend on the chest physicians, the organizations American Thoracic Society, for example in providing us with their guidelines that they have vetted based on their evidence. And if anybody challenges us, we say, these are the guidelines that have been developed by physicians for that type of patient. Regardless of whether or not we're talking about antibiotics for pneumonia or aspirin for heart attacks, or uh, fall preventions in hospitals to keep people from falling, breaking things, or prophylaxis against pressure ulcers. We rely on the evidence as created by the experts.
0: You mentioned a big part of this was saying, listen, it's free. But when we hear quality improvement, most people think... You know, where is the funding to be able to do that, and how is that funding being allocated? In this case, are there any challenges there? Obviously, this is federally subsidized, but do you have to work with tight budget restraints or constraints?
1: We do, and I think that's our biggest challenge is we're not able to get to as many people as we would like to because we have budget constraints, for example, that limit the amount of travel we can do or the amount of webinars we can do or the amount of uh, hospitals that we can contact. So what we try to do is focus on the hospital's or nursing homes or home health agencies, whatever, who need the most help. We look at their metrics and compare them to everybody else's. And if they need help being brought up, then that's, that's what we do. We work with those preferentially. And we target disparities. So whenever there's cultural, ethnic, racial disparities, particularly with things like diabetes and heart disease, you know, we work with the population groups that need the most help.
0: And how do you track success in those initiatives or in those endeavors?
1: Hospitals have to self-report, for example. Nursing homes have to self-report and all that. And we look at what they do year after year in terms of are their reporting metrics getting better. And if they're not, then we talk with them and they say, what can we do to help you? Okay, what can we do to share what we know has worked at other facilities that you could adopt at your facility.
0: And as far as the program in Michigan goes, is it essentially within its own island, or are you able to compare and rank against the endeavors from other states as well?
1: Actually, we are working collaboratively now with the states of Minnesota and Wisconsin. It's called the Lake Superior Quality Innovation Network, basically. Mm -hmm. And this is something that CMS did a couple years ago when they created these networks, so multiple states working together. So in a way, that's, that's the way we can internally learn from our some of our sister states to see what they've been successful in and then apply it to, to Michigan. Yeah, it's kind of cool, actually.
0: That does sound pretty cool. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz, and I'm joined with Dr. James Michener uh, from the University of Michigan Medical School. Dr. Michener, let's shift away from that particular focus of your work and move over to your overall interest in health policy. How did you get so interested in health policy and become such an active proponent of it?
1: I've actually for a long time been very curious about how the American health system works or doesn't work. (laughs) And so I went back to graduate school in 1994 at the age of 41 and uh, got my master's degree in health management and policy. And uh, the one thing that was cool about that is that it taught you to think. I mean, they didn't feed you what the answers were. They said, this is what our health system is or isn't. You make up your own mind how you think it could be improved. In my case, I'm an emergency physician, so I see the emergency department from a 30,000-foot you know, view. It's, it's not just taking care of heart attacks, pulmonary emboli, multiple trauma, overdoses. Okay, The emergency department is an absolute, necessary, indispensable component of American health care, For many people, it's their first access to health care in the ED, and I think that the model for emergency medicine is that it is basically a de facto single-payer environment because emergency medicine practice enshrines the principles of universality, where anybody can come and get care, portability, which means that if you live in one state and you get sick in another, you can go to the emergency department there freedom of choice, which allows patients to choose whichever emergency department they want to go to for whatever reason that's personally applicable to them. Fourth, lack of cost as a barrier to healthcare, care, because anybody can go into the emergency department regardless of their insurance status or their ability to pay. And finally, equity, the fact that we do not discriminate in terms of diagnosis, treatment, or therapy on the basis of the patient's individual characteristics. Everybody is treated the same. And I think that that model, which basically is what emergency medicine is, should be applicable all over the country. And it would save us a ton of money. Most recent statistic came out that if we went to a universal Medicare for All, expanded Medicare for All program, we would save over $400 billion a year in unnecessary administrative costs and everybody knows that emergency well not everybody but people should know that emergency medicine is a bargain you know we only cost about 2 to 3% of the american healthcare budget and yet we take care of some like 15 20% of the population and, and yet it, it's
0: interesting because emergency medicine in particular gets a pretty bad rap in that respect you yourself said not everybody knows and we often hear of emergency medicine becoming the scapegoat for health care costs nationwide. What right. do you think about that?
1: Well, I think that's an unfair indictment of emergency medicine, obviously. And you know what? People are voting with their feet. You know, we're getting busier every year. It's predicted uh, by the end of this decade we'll have 150 million visits to the emergency department, which is right now about 40% of the American population will go to the emergency department at least once this year. And that number has been growing since I started in practice in 1983. People know that we're there for them and that we won't ask questions about their ability to pay or what kind of insurance they have. We'll take care of them. Mm-hmm. And I like that idea. <laughs> and, I, and the reason that they indict us is not because we cost a lot. It's because we charge a lot. And the interesting thing is, is that if you have health insurance, you never pay what the charges are. You only pay a fraction of the charges. And the people that are forced to pay the charges, ironically, are the ones that are uninsured whose insurance company can't discount the charges. That's the irony of the whole thing. I think we get a bad rap because they they don't realize that we have to charge as much as we do to cover the cost for those who can't pay, even though people that are insured only pay a fraction of the charges. And
0: what about the proponents of the medical home health care model? In primary care, for instance, sometimes some of the objections I've heard is that emergency medicine or EDs across the country make it more difficult to establish a medical home, or they become the substitute medical home for many people who can't get a a primary care provider. Do you feel like there's an easy way for that to harmonize, or right now is it a strife-based situation?
1: (laughs) Well, the joke is that we're the home for the homeless, you know, for people who can't get health care anywhere else, they, they come to us. The answer to your question is yes, we will have to harmonize because the emphasis now is on population health. It isn't enough to just come to the emergency department and have whatever your emergent need is taken care of. We have to look at the whole patient in terms of making sure that their, the preventive health care is there, identifying people that come in for a minor problem but really have sky-high blood pressure that they haven't addressed or people who come in for a sprained ankle but their blood sugar is high because they're not taking care of their diabetes. I think there's going to be more emphasis from a public health standpoint and preventive medicine standpoint placed on the emergency department in terms of working with our colleagues to expand and improve the health of the population.
0: And you think that this will be embraced by emergency physicians, if not already? Because we often hear sometimes of the complaint of, they're coming in for an emergency and I have to take care of them across the spectrum, and I have so many other people coming in that need emergent or trauma-based issues taken care of immediately, and the waiting rooms keep building, and the triage becomes harder and harder. How do you either acknowledge or respond to that claim?
1: Well, Matt, you know, that's an indictment of our healthcare system. When people are coming to the emergency department for basic primary care needs, that they could get more efficiently in a primary care physician's office. And by more efficient, I mean if they had a primary care physician, that doctor would know them and would not do as many tests as we are compelled to do because we don't know the patient. That doctor would be much better at coordinating care with other physicians, particularly with other specialists, I think it's sad that so many people are forced to come to the ED because they can't get the care they need for non-urgent conditions, preventive care, whatever, in their doctor's offices. Because in many cases, even with the new insurance plans they have under the Affordable Care Act, The cost sharing is so high, the deductibles, the co-insurance is so high that they can't afford it. There was a recent poll that just came out from ASEP last month that showed that 7 out of 10 emergency physicians are being confronted with patients who are coming to the ED for basic health care they can't get anywhere else because of the out-of-pocket costs that are imposed on them by these new insurance plans. The question is, what good is an insurance plan if it doesn't cover your costs, if it doesn't put you at risk for medical bankruptcy, if you're having to pay so much out of pocket, even for basic preventive care, that you can't afford it? That's not insurance. That's pseudo-insurance or under-insurance. And so they come to the emergency department because they know that they're going to get a friendly handshake and a warm smile, and we're going to take care of them. And I think it's sad that, that some of them are forced to do that because they can't get access anywhere
0: else. Well, Dr. Michener, you've given us a lot to think about. Before we wrap up, anything else you want to add uh, on the subject?
1: Well, I think that we in this country need to take a really strong look at where all the money is going. We, we are spending... trillion a year, about $9,000 for every man, woman, and child in this country, and yet the quality of the care, the efficiency of the care, the outcomes are not better than most other countries that spend a lot less and have a universal health care program. And we need to see that all the money, a large part of the money in health care is being sucked up by these greedy insurance companies whose primary business objective, primary business objective of a for-profit health insurer is to make a profit. The first thing they do when they get a dollar health care premium is they immediately lop off 15 to 20 percent to pay their administrative army of accountants, actuaries, lobbyists, lawyers public relations, marketing specialists, shareholder dividends, before they even spend $1 on actual health care. They're feeding themselves before they feed anybody else. That is the problem. That, that's why health care in America is so expensive. It's not because doctors are ordering too many tests or because of technology being so expensive or because of pharmaceuticals being out of reach for the average person. It's because too much money is being wasted on private for-profit insurance companies that, frankly, are not providing any advantage over what a public payer like Medicare will do.
0: Well, with that, perhaps <laughs> one of the most articulate, eloquent battle cries I've heard and definitive evidence for why my guest today received the Colin C. Rory Jr. Ph.D. Award for Excellence in Health Policy. I do want to thank Dr. James Michner for joining us. Thanks again for, for being here. Thank with you, us. Matt. Thank you. Pleasure. This is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. To access this and other amazing interviews that we've done over at ASAP, join us at ReachMD.com, and thanks for being here.